everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. Today on the podcast, we are continuing the series we started last time with Dr. Christine Pohl. Today we're talking about community and her book, Living Into Community. Dr. Pohl taught at Asbury Seminary for 29 years, and she is the professor of Professor Emeritus of Christian Ethics at Asbury Seminary. Today on the podcast, as I said, we continue the conversation on community. We learn what a healthy community looks like, how we can really live in a healthy community. We unpack the essential practices that she focused on in her book of promise-keeping, truth-telling, gratitude, and hospitality, what those deformations are, and how we can start cultivating those healthy practices in our own lives so that we can be transformed people that others want in their own communities. Let's listen. I'm really excited to have you back on the podcast, Dr. Pohl, and to get to talk to you a little bit more about community and the different things, different elements that make up a community, because I think we all kind of have an idea of what community is, but I'm not sure all of our ideas are a healthy community. I know I was definitely enlightened about um, not knowing just what a community is, but seeing some areas in my own life and the relationships with others. Then I'm like, yes, I have community, but it's not always a vulnerable, authentic community because maybe I'm not willing or others aren't willing to share the deeper things inside them. So I'm really looking forward to going deeper with today's conversation. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. So some of the practices, well, the practices that you mentioned in your book, Living Into Community, are that make up a healthy community are promise-keeping, truthfulness, gratitude, and, of course, hospitality. So can you give us a little bit of a picture of what a healthy community looks like, whether that's an example of healthy communities you've been a part of or um, just kind of what an ideal community would look like? Well, I'll give it a try. Um, okay. <laughs> let, let me start out by saying those are the four practices that I focused on. Okay. But there certainly are other really important practices, um, like forgiveness or discernment or some version of keeping Sabbath or worship and prayer and so on. So I don't want to suggest that these are the only four that are crucial for healthy or good community. But I do think they're um, really central to shaping and maintaining a good community. So I think, to to try to address your question, mm-hmm. um, I think a healthy community is one that actually embodies these practices, that lives out the practices in a way, in the way in which um, people relate to one another. So the Gospel of John says that Jesus was filled with grace and truth. It's a wonderful picture. And that should be true of us as his followers and true of our communities. And I think these four um, practices are particular expressions of grace and truth. And so then it helps to ask ourselves, well, what are the relational dynamics of grace and truth? What do grace and truth look like when they're lived out in relationships in a community? And in a community that is, is healthy, I mean, I think we could say that people would live with one another truthfully. Um, There wouldn't be a lot of pretense or posturing um, or pretending. Um, People would make and keep promises. You'd see a culture of celebration and gratitude. Um, 
uh, community of welcome and hospitality. But I think I'm, I'm cautious with the notion of ideal communities because I don't think there are any. Uh-huh. Um, communities yes. aren't perfect. Um, they never are. And there are always challenges that come from different directions. But sometimes we fail in a practice. We don't tell the truth. Or, um, or even we find that one practice makes doing another one more challenging. So maybe you want to be hospitable and welcome one another, but you also need to speak truthfully, maybe a difficult truth. And sometimes, sometimes those can feel a bit at odds with each other. And I think that's when the healthy community also needs to be practicing confession and forgiveness, reconciliation and discernment. So there's a lot of practices at work, at work in a good community. Okay. Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, when I was working on hospitality, which was my first kind of big project on a practice, that's where I really saw that all the practices interact with each other and the deformations or the failures in practices affect other practices. So... Just for example, you know, we would we would think that gratitude is really important in mm-hmm. a good community, but sometimes it's not functioning very well, but you still want to do hospitality. But hospitality without gratitude is really grudging, and grudging hospitality is not good for anybody. So you can sort of see how failure in one practice actually affects another one. For sure. So I've really liked looking at the intersections of practices. I think actually that's some of the most interesting and most complicated um, dimension of, of this work. But I would say that a healthy community, a good community, is one that people want to be part of, which is funny, but I mean, so that they're not grudging about, about <laughs> contributing or being there. They're glad to be together. And um, those communities are, I think, generous and grace-filled. Yes, yes, for sure. I like what you said. I like what you said about grace and truth being part of it um, because it doesn't have to be perfect and, but it just has to be real and genuine and yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's a terrible mistake to, to imagine that communities can be perfect. I think there's a lot of idealism about Mm -hmm. community and almost inevitably people are going to be disappointed because we're frail. We make mistakes. We, you know, we, fail each other. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be prepared for that too. Yeah. So what do we do? I mean, and I guess, first of all, I should ask, when you talk about community, are you talking about um, an intentional community? Like, um, I, Maybe I'm thinking incorrectly, but with an intentional community, I think of maybe something like a monastery or something along those lines. Or are you addressing like church communities, small groups, even just communities and neighborhoods? Like, is there a specific type of community or is it all community? Well, to a certain extent, because these are human practices, I think they apply to all communities. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the way that I've looked at them also has kind of a Christian dimension to it. I would say that I was thinking about communities at many different um, levels of mm-hmm. um, complexity and number and that kind of thing. So this can apply to, I, I'm certainly thinking about church congregations, okay. but also intentional communities. I think most of the time this applies to families in terms of how we relate to one another. I mean, Yeah, say just, more about families because most of us have s- some type of family, whether we're, yeah. So how does it relate to family? Well, I think families... You know, families survive by the promises they've made to one another. 
Um, so making and keeping promises, you know, fidelity to one another is really crucial. You know, families are much happier places if people pr- practice gratitude toward one another <laughs> and yeah. so on. So the practices make as much sense in terms of small groupings, whether it's a small group or a family. What you have with a family is a community that really needs to last over time in a way that some of the other ones aren't quite yeah. as, you know, um, you know, decades yeah. and decades of life together. Yeah, and you hope that you like each other for well, the yeah. long haul. I mean, it yeah. helps, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does. So we talked about this earlier, the grace and truth that goes into communities, and that's kind of a, a balance that you have to strike. What do you do when the balance gets off? Like you mentioned, um, what if you know somebody isn't always telling the truth or telling the truth in the way that you need to hear the truth, or there's some type of conflict or moral moral failure or deformation in the community? What? How do you maintain community when things go wrong? I think in terms of when, when things go wrong, and we'll probably have to unpack the practices and the deformations a little bit more, but yes. um, when, when things go wrong, part of the, the key dynamic is that oftentimes people sort of cut and run. Okay. Um, and so one of the crucial things about being able to move toward reconciliation and healing and rebuilding is being willing to stay at the table, staying connected, not cutting ties, not cutting conversation, but maintaining um, conversation and relationships as as much as as possible. And Mm -hmm. so avoiding gossip, avoiding um, assigning to the other people with whom you um, disagree or who've disappointed you, you know, being careful not to continually assign bad motives to them, um, finding finding ways to rebuild what's what's been broken. So let's go back then, and we can unpack each practice that you focus on in your in your book, and then we'll talk about the deformations, and then some ways that we can start cultivating the the practices that we want to have in our lives, so that we can be people who are transformed, and that others want to be part of their communities. So the practices that you focused on are promise keeping truth-telling, practicing gratitude, and hospitality. So let's um, let's start with promise-keeping and just unpack each one one at a time. You know, it's, it's funny, especially with making and keeping promises and, and telling the truth or speaking, living truthfully, mostly we don't notice them unless something goes wrong. Yes. But making and keeping promises is crucial to any relationship, as I was saying about families. But if you think about the marriage vows... Or the ordinary promises we make to do something. You know, when we say, I'll pick up the kids, um, we depend on each other. This is how we build trust. Because promises set up expectations. They take away some of the unpredictability of life. And so we depend on each other to, to keep the promises we make. And that can be on small things, like maybe picking up the kids. Or it can be on really big ones, like staying faithful in a marriage. But promising Mm -hmm. is related to faithfulness and fidelity, and we worship a God who is faithful and true. And God keeps promises, right? We we worship a covenant-keeping God. So it's not surprising that we as God's people should be taking seriously both promise-making and promise-keeping. So when we do what we say we'll do or stay with someone or something um, when uh, when we've made a commitment but it's become difficult— we're doing something important for the relationship. I think it's important to talk about this because 
Um, being willing to make commitments, to make promises in this culture is difficult. Our culture really likes to keep our options open. Yes. And that actually means that we're very hesitant about making promises. We don't want to make promises in case something better comes along. Mm-hmm. And yet that's a really hard way to live. Yeah. Constantly living with that fear of missing out. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so then you sort of settle for much less um, rich relationships and so on, just because you're waiting in case something better comes along. Um, and it, so keeping promises is really crucial to maintaining any significant relationship. As you said, there's a relationship between each of the practices. And so promise keeping would then tie pretty well directly into truth telling. Is that right? Yes. Actually, even in scripture, the two of them are, are so closely related sometimes that you, you sometimes it's translated as faithfulness, which would be more like promise keeping. And some, mm-hmm. sometimes it's translated as truth. But, but yes, they're very closely connected. And of mm-hmm. course, the deformations like betrayal and deception are also very closely connected. Yes. But I think in terms of, of truth telling, and I, when I was working on the on the project, I realized that truth-telling was not a big enough category for truthfulness. I mean, that's a piece of it. But truthful living, I think, oftentimes captures a little bit more of what we need to be attentive to. Truth-telling is an important part of it. But when we talk about truth-telling, I think a lot of times people think of things they don't want to say or the other person doesn't want to hear or whatever. So it always seems kind of harsh. And yet living truthfully is bigger. It has to, again, it has to do with remembering that Jesus tells us that he is the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And we want to live in a way that reflects biblical value of um, the the way that the Bible values truthful living. So Mm -hmm. it's not just about saying hard things, because lots of truth that could be spoken is affirming and encouraging truths, um, positive mm-hmm. things we might say about one another or what we see in one another, but we're not used to thinking about it that way. So that's actually where truth, truthfulness and gratitude intersect. Okay. Right? Where you, yes. you know, you're, you're recognize the, the, what, what goodness a person brings into your life. Um, yeah. So let's move on. And I think you're going there. Let's move on and talk about gratitude now then. Sure. And again, gratitude is um, really involves living in response to the grace that we've received. It's not just an occasional saying thanks or something. It's really a posture for how we live. And I think it means sort of cultivating an awareness of the gifted, as one person put it, the giftedness of our existence, Mm -hmm. our whole existence. And so that means gratitude to God, practicing gratitude toward one another. And then gratitude essentially is a posture for life um, or a way Mm -hmm. of life. And Mm -hmm. I think that involves paying attention. A lot of times we just kind of rush our way through things. We don't notice the grace and gratitude around us. Um, We don't name the blessings Um, that we have received, or the ways that people have been God's grace in our life. So here, again, it involves truthfulness, because if you have sort of gratitude or affirmation without truthfulness, you end up with something like flattery, which is sort of a dishonest affirmation. But gratitude kind of spills from um, or into truthful affirmation and even celebration. Carl Bart Bart said that if if the essence of God is grace, then the essence of human beings as God's people is our gratitude. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I love that quote. He, He also says that grace and gratitude fit together like the voice and an echo. And I think those are wonderful pictures of responding 
to the grace that we've received from God, but also from one another in a way that echoes back that grace. Would you say that hospitality then is one of the ways that that grace gets echoed back? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Because once again, I mean, hospitality, I I think for Christians is a response to the grace we've received, the welcome that we've received from God um, in Christ so that, you know, it's still, if we're aware of it, if we're sensitive to the extraordinary welcome that we've received, then it's going to spill out in gratitude and expressions of hospitality and so on. So we're living in a way that replicates, that corresponds and responds to God's um, welcome. Yeah. So now let's talk about each of the deformations. So because from your book, what I learned was that we can, at least I can be practicing some of the deformations and not even realize it. So I think it's really helpful um, because as you said in your book, we have to be able to see it and name the deformations so that we can then with God's grace, um, change it and go on to live transformed lives. So with promise keeping, you know, the opposite or the deformation is betrayal. So can you give us, talk to us about betrayal and what that would look like in a community? Sure. Sure. And, you know, you have big and little forms of betrayal, right? But big betrayals, you know, think about something like clergy misconduct, which Mm -hmm. is a profound betrayal of the commitments one's made, the um, care for others in your congregation, and so on. So, um, but we can have um, betrayal in the form of not keeping promises, of gossip, or maybe repeating things we've been told in confidence, So it often looks like broken promises or a loss of trust. I think one of the things that struck me over the years is, you know, if you think about children who, um, for whom adults have have failed in their lives, right, who Mm -hmm. haven't kept promises, and this has been a repeated experience, if you've worked with those kind of kids, you realize how hard it is for them to trust after that, what damage that kind of betrayal does. So Mm -hmm. it, it takes all sorts of forms. One of the things that, that struck me when I was studying betrayal was something like the, the biblical passages that describe the incidents around Jesus' crucifixion. And, you know, Judas is a classic sort of example of betrayal, right? Betrays a friend mm-hmm. with a kiss and so on. But Peter denies Jesus three times. That's also betrayal, right? Yeah. But it seems like it really kind of snuck up on Peter. He didn't realize that he was doing anything something that significant until all of a sudden, you know, after the third time in the cockroach, he, he realizes what he's done. Yeah. But it, it made me realize that a lot of betrayals are, are sort of small. I mean, maybe he thought he was going to stand in front of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees or something or other. And, you know, he would never deny Jesus there, but he does it with a, a servant girl or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in corners and so on. And then, then he's kind of caught by it. I think ours our forms of betrayal are a little bit more like Peter than Judas. But then I was thinking also, you know, you have the betrayal of Pilate, who really betrays his office, his position, yeah. by just thinking he can wash his hands of it and walk uh-huh. away. So I think there are all different kinds of betrayal. They're incredibly destructive to relationships. It's a hard, it's a hard one to come back from. It requires a lot of confession and forgiveness. Yes, definitely. So truth-telling, the opposite, it's very closely tied to betrayal, but a little bit different. Mm-hmm. The deformation is deception. So talk to us a little bit about that and what that might look like in our lives. Right. Well, you know, that's another one where you can have the really big lies, 
right? Yes. Where somebody and those are easy to recognize. So I think I was just right interested in like the smaller ones, but like you were saying, just kind of sneak up on us. And I was thinking for myself, I'm like, oh, sometimes I'm not always the person that I think I am, you know? Right. And that that actually, we'll talk about that in a minute because that has to do with self-deception. Yeah. I mean, I think you see deception in, I mean, we're, we're really in the habit of, of putting what, what we'll call spin on things, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we ask how we can spin the situation so everything looks better and so on. But that's, you know, that's a form of deception. Um, we do lots of exaggerating um, Photoshopping things, omitting relevant facts that are inconvenient or unbecoming, or we pretend mm-hmm. to be something that we're not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as I said, sometimes it's flat out lying, but a lot of times it's more subtle. It's, it, I think oftentimes it's, it's wanting to look good. Um, and so we stretch the truth just a little bit this time, and then it, it becomes easier to do it the next time. I think there again, there are some cultural things that make it easier at this point to be willing to engage in like little deceptions. One has to do with sort of the attitude of what it will do whatever it takes to accomplish something. Yes. And you know, if what it takes is a little bit of deception, oh well, you know, it was for a good goal. And it's like people don't realize that by doing that, they're gonna miss the goal. You can't get to a good goal by by bad means, by deception. Right. And so that that becomes, I think, a, a tendency. Um, that's what you see with cheating. So when when someone cheats on an exam or something and says, "Well, I just had to get into that good school or something," and it's like, "Really? At what price?" And so right, on. yeah. But I think we also see problems with self deception. Oh, how um, so? Yeah, I think I think this is a vulnerability of religious people in particular because we want to be good and we want to see ourselves as good. But we also want to do what we want. Right. And, and so sometimes we, we sort of work to fool ourselves, to hide from ourselves what it is we're doing. And sometimes we give it different names. We use euphemisms or we just put it in another category so we don't notice it or we just sort of overlooked it or whatever. But it's it's the way that we work to sort of help ourselves think of ourselves as maybe better than we are. We all do that. And as you were talking, and it's not okay. I've just like, my words kind of just passed it off as we all do that. But I don't mean that because it's, we need to, I need to fix that. But I was thinking of social media too, and Mm -hmm. its presence in our lives as Mm -hmm. part of the truth telling or not truth telling game, because we can make, make our lives look so good, so easy. And it doesn't really reflect the truth. Cause I think of, um, couples, that, you know, maybe I've, I'm not sure I've known any, but I've known people who knew couples like this, that their lives on social media look perfect. And then six months later, you find out, oh, they're getting a divorce. And so these pictures aren't telling us the true story that maybe they, they need help or, you know, people to come alongside them or counseling or something like that. So Absolutely. I mean, I think there's, there's, you know, that terrible tendency to hide our weaknesses and, try again to look better than we're doing. I mean, there, there's a way in which we want to, you know, model good lives, but um, deception isn't isn't going to help that very much. Right. It just leads to secret sins mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and not living a full life. Right. Right. Yeah. So moving on then to the deformation of gratitude, envy and grumbling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, um, pretty pretty common, I think. Um, yeah. I, I guess I'll, I'll do grumbling first, which is okay. a really common deformation of gratitude. I mean, it it's it, it's sort of being able always to see what's missing, how things should have been. Sort of, I think oftentimes it's kind of a generalized discontent or being able to be critical without being constructive. I think grumbling is sometimes tied to sort of a disappointed idealism, right? You set up impossible expectations, and then you are going to be disappointed. Nothing's ever going to kind of live up to what you dreamed would be possible. So it's, I think grumbling is highly contagious in communities. Yes. Um, It is like a virus. Once it gets started, it's hard to stop it. Um, And it can become a way of life, and it is actually extremely miserable. Yes. Um, I was struck when I read the rule of Benedict that he talked about um, what he called justifiable grumbling. And I thought that was a helpful warning. What he was talking about there was sort of legitimate criticism and distinguishing between that and grumbling. So sometimes um, we could maybe um, accuse someone of grumbling or complaint when really what they're trying to do is um, provide um, truthful um, critique. And so I think we have to be careful not to misinterpret that as grumbling. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. So what about envy then? How, how envy. do we, re- oh, envy is a big one. How do we recognize that in our lives? Right. I, I don't think I understood before I started studying it just how serious um, envy was as a sin, especially in communities, just how destructive it was. Um, Kierkegaard wrote that envy is a small town sin. And when I first read that, I thought, huh, what, is, what does that mean? But what he meant and observed, I think, is that envy is rooted in comparison. And we compare ourselves to people who are more or less like us or, or people who are nearby. Um, mm-hmm. And so it flourishes in close-knit communities. But it's when we compare ourselves to other people. It's a sin that destroys community. It's wanting what someone else has, and, and what, which would just be like, just be, but I mean, which is more like coveting, wanting what someone mm-hmm. else has. But envy has another, um, a, a nastier, meaner element in it, which is also not wanting them to have it. Oh, um, yeah. And so Thomas Aquinas and other, actually other people in the tradition said that envy is sorrow for another's good. And, oh. and when you think about that, that is really horrible, right? To be sad and sorrowful because somebody else is doing well in some area. You know, nobody wants to admit that. And so we hide no. it. Right, we hide it. This is where deception and envy travel together. It's kind of a monster. But we can envy, you know, this is this is where you start thinking about, you know, you can envy another person's success, you can envy the recognition they get for something, you can envy their gifts, you can envy their happy family in a way that's so desperate and unhappy that you don't want them to have it because you don't have it or whatever. And so it's a plague in communities because we are so, we can, you know, we see into each other's lives. But I think basically it's tied to not seeing the gifts that we've been given. Yes, and when, I found that very interesting when you said that. Yeah, and wanting somebody else's gifts rather than seeing what God has given us. And I think it also has to do with not recognizing how much we are loved by God. Oh. So it comes out of a sort of, I think in some ways, an emptiness, a, a deep need. But it's a very unhelpful um, deformation. Definitely. 
And so then moving on to hospitality, the the deformation, I keep wanting to say opposite. I'm not sure that's the correct language. The deformation is exclusion. Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think... I think exclusion is is tied to having too small a vision for a good community, sort of trying to hold on to what we have and holding on to it in a way that's so desperate that we can't let other people in. So we become fearful of strangers or protective of our things or our lifestyle or whatever, and kind of assuming that we're better off without those people, whoever they might be. And sometimes we do it by like, maybe seeing them as not a good enough return on our investment or um, too much trouble, or maybe they'll interfere with our way of life or they're too risky or too different. Um, but we set up boundaries. We don't make room. I think sometimes it comes from a fear that welcoming some people might include they're bringing their commitments with them and that could undermine our particular commitments. And that's that's really where fidelity and hospitality sometimes are really crucial and sometimes they are challenging to try to hold them together at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've talked about fidel- fidelity. Can you go ahead and define that for us? Because it's a word that we don't use very much today, and I feel like it has a deeper meaning than what we think of, or at least what I think of when I think of promise keeping and truth telling. What What is fidelity? Fidelity in some ways is a combination of both of those practices. Okay. Um, just like integrity is. Um, but fidelity has the, the element of faithfulness to something or someone. But fidelity, so I think, I think of fidelity as a bigger category. Mm-hmm. But um, I think fidelity tends to, in some ways anyway, have us look backward, back toward a commitment we've made and keeping that commitment. Promise keeping actually tends to be oriented toward the future. So, they, you know, they have a lot of the same elements, but they also are, are slightly distinct. Yes. So that we, makes we sense. hear a lot about faithfulness and fidelity in scripture, being mm-hmm. faithful to the covenant and so on. That's a bit, mostly backward looking, but we also have promises and vows and, um, and so on that we make toward the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Um, that fidelity looks back mostly promises look forward. So it's an all-encompassing view of both the past, the present, and the future. That's right. That's right. And they both impact, both looking backward and looking forward, both impact how we live now. I love that. So now that we've talked about the formations and the deformations of these specific practices within a community, um, I know I had some revelations as we were talking and I was as I was reading your book, Living Into Community, especially regarding envy. I didn't quite realize the the depth and nastiness of of that particular deformation and truth telling, especially around. Um, living truthfully and self-deceptions that I tell myself. I want to talk to us. I want. I was hoping you would talk to us about some ways that we can start cultivating the formational practices. So even just, I'm hoping it's simple because I need things to be simple for me to like do them. I think we all so do. I'm hoping. Yeah. So I'm hoping that we could just talk about each, go through the formations then, and talk about some ways that we can um, cultivate promise keeping. We'll start with that one. Sure. I, I would say at this point, though, it's really important um, not to, to sort of think of these practices as one more task we should be doing. Oh, that's well, a good word. Um, I, I think if it just becomes just a duty or, or just working harder, it's going to make them very burdensome. They, they represent pieces of a way of life. 
so that they have this goodness that's inside of them. And I think that goodness comes from, from God's grace. And so the practices apart from grace would, would be very burdensome. So I think um, pay, paying attention to that and recognizing there are things that we can do to make these practices more vibrant in our lives, but it's God's love and grace that make them possible. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm and, glad you said that because, yeah, yeah, I can definitely that, just have tasks that I'm like, oh, I need to I need to be kinder, so we'll work on that and check it off. And that's that's not really the, the rhythm that no, I want in my life. Yeah, No, it's not. It's really, a, um, we're talking more about a way of, you know, we're sort of breaking apart a way of life, but it's a way of life lived in response to the grace that we've received. Mm-hmm. So in terms of particulars about how we might um, – foster promise keeping. One of the things we can do, especially if we're in mentoring relationships or teaching or leadership roles, is to help people learn to count the cost before they make promises. Um, Some people make promises very casually, but then don't don't really recognize that you you can't possibly fulfill all the things you've promised. Um, And you become kind of a habitual promise breaker. So helping people count the cost can, can be good. I think we can honor fidelity where we see it, where we see people being faithful over time, where they've kept their promises um, in difficult situations or over the long term. I think that needs to be celebrated more than it, than it often is because it's not very dramatic. You know, it doesn't call attention to itself, but it's that steady um, faithfulness. I think, there, again, there are people who um, have a lot of commitments and sometimes they seem overwhelmed and burdened by them. And so I think sometimes we can help people by by helping them to get kind of a right ordering of their commitments uh-huh. um, so that it's not so overwhelming. Actually, that could be an experience of freedom rather than yes. feeling bound by promises. You could feel free um, by getting them kind of in the right order. Yeah. Um, when is it appropriate to release? Because you're kind of talking about that. When is it appropriate to release someone or even ourselves from promises that we've made? Yeah, that's interesting. That's a that's a a very long conversation in the Christian tradition <laughs> yeah. um, and in philosophy. Um, actually, philosophers talk about um, conditions that defeat a promise. I always thought that was pretty funny. Um, yeah. Conditions that defeat a promise, but there are reasons that we don't we don't always um, keep our promises. Although it's really important that we do almost all of the time, but sometimes the conditions change, so the promise is no longer relevant. You know, if if you've promised to stay with somebody for a week while they recover from surgery, but actually they recover within a couple of days. I mean, it's sort of it makes the promise not particularly relevant to the situation anymore. Um, right. Sometimes a person can't fulfill the promise they've made, um, and so it's important to release them. I mean, maybe their circumstances have changed dramatically, and they just can't do what they thought they genuinely thought they could do and mm-hmm. would do. Sometimes a much more pressing need appears, and um, it sort of makes you have to choose the pressing thing over the the promise thing because there's such a difference in sort of the magnitude of importance. Mm-hmm. I think, and this is this is a conversation in the moral tradition, but I think that when when we do break promises, it's not like the promise just disappears. We still owe the person um, that we've made the promise to some recognition that it's been, you know, it may have been costly to them. If if you're driving along and, you know, you come upon an accident and you're the only one who can 
um, help the person, of course you're going to stop, even though you promise to be at a meeting, right? And there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of people waiting for you. Well, it's not like the obligation to those people goes away just because you needed to do it. I mean, you still owe those people something for the fact that they waited an hour and a half for you without knowing what happened or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you still owe an apology or an effort to, you know, make it right in some way. It doesn't just disappear, which is what some, sometimes people imagine that the promise just goes away if you can't do it or something. I don't think it does, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. As we're talking about promise keeping, what is the relationship between perseverance and keeping your promise? That's an interesting question. I think, you know, there are some promises that you kind of like, you make the promise and you deliver on it very um, in, in very close amount of time, right? So you promise that you'll cook dinner tonight or, you know, pick up the kids tomorrow or whatever. It doesn't require a lot of perseverance. You just need to do it and it'll be done. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, Keeping marriage vows over decades is does sometimes require perseverance. Or ordination vows during a difficult period or whatever requires that we um, hang in there during tough times, that we, we press on um, to be faithful to the promise and the people we've made the promise to. So mm-hmm. it's crucial for long-term commitments, especially when we encounter obstacles. Mm-hmm. Is it ever okay when we encounter obstacles, is it ever okay to rescind our uh, rescind our promise? I think you can, um, yes. I mean, I think there are times where we do have to reconsider, you know, when the circumstances or the obstacles have become enormous. Then I think that oftentimes requires uh, truthful conversations. It can be very difficult, right? Because promises are important to relationships and it can be a huge fracturing of trust. But there are times when communities do have to rethink their promises. And I think, again, then all of the other practices become important. So moving on to truth-telling, what are some ways, because it's not just speaking the truth, it's living truthful lives, as we learned in today's conversation. So what are some ways that we can start practicing a lifestyle of truth-telling? Well, I think we can start by recognizing its importance and pushing back against a culture that increasingly disregards the significance of truth. I think we need to talk about it, we need to recognize it, and we need to practice it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that bluntness is the same as truth oh, um, yeah. or truthfulness. Yeah. I think we, have to, we can use kindness. I mean, we need to use kindness and care when we are speaking the truth, and it certainly requires discernment. Um, If you think about it, we can be truthful without necessarily saying everything we know. We we can be truthful with children, especially, um, and still not say everything about something. We use discernment, but I think it's really important that fidelity, so sort of the promising piece, is is fully present when we do difficult truth-telling. If the person can't be sure that you actually care about them, that you love them, it becomes harder Um, to hear the truth. And I think Mm -hmm. it's easier to do difficult truthfulness in contexts where there's been a lot of uh, positive truths spoken uh, as as sort of part of of everyday life, so that you have sort of a a fabric that holds the person as you're dealing with difficult um, things. One of the examples that I remember 
from your book was about a couple in a church who was having difficulties in their relationship. So I believe it was, if I'm remembering right, the wife in the couple went to their pastor at the time, spoke with him about the situation, but didn't want the pastor to tell her husband that she had talked to him. So it kind of created this awkward triangle as the pastor encouraged the couple to get counseling. They went forward and did that and their marriage, they stayed together. And then, but because the pastor knew of some of their issues, it created um, some difficulties down the road when the husband wanted to advance in the area of ministry in the church and take on more leadership responsibilities. So I guess I'm just, I thought that example was especially relevant to our audience. I guess I'm just not sure how do you honor being truthful to the wife, being truthful to the husband, being truthful to the couple? Right. It's, it's probably a promise he should not have made. Um, oh, yeah, wife. talk about that. Are, yeah. That, yeah, promises yeah. that I mean, we should not make. T- there are times when you shouldn't agree to keep certain things in confidence, and that was that was probably something that he learned a little bit late in that in that situation, um, because it really did. I mean, it caused enormous problems later on when the the husband couldn't understand why the church resisted his moving forward, mm-hmm. um, and you know the the pastor was trying to be faithful to the promises that he made, and at that point he had made that promise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think again, um, sort of issues around confidentiality and um, truthfulness and so on are complicated, and yeah. they can they can have long term um, consequences that can be very um, helpful or destructive to a community and to mm-hmm. relationships. How can we start telling the truth to ourselves? Because I think that's the tricky part, because we know ourselves the best, but maybe we don't know ourselves completely. And I think it's easy to do kind of more smoke and mirrors when we're dealing with ourselves. So how can we start telling ourselves the truth? Well, I think it can help to have other people around us <laughs> who <Yeah. laughs> help us see the truth about ourselves. Um I that might challenge us when we try to describe what we're doing differently. Um, I think there can be kind of a willful not seeing. So, I mean, I think it involves a a prayer for um, kind of a clear vision, a willingness to, I I, I think part of it's tied, again, to wanting to be good, which is a good thing, but it um, it can be blinding in the sense that we can't admit our frailties or we're afraid to admit our sins. And I think we just have to recognize that God God loves us and wants for us something better, something truer, um, even if it's hard to see it. Is it ever okay to lie? Oh, dear. <laughs> I know. You kind of talked about that in your book. So I'm, You're asking and I feel an like- ethicist a question that has like filled many volumes. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, <laughs> Mostly, no, it's not okay to lie because uh-huh. we love the truth. You know, I mean, we can look at, uh, we, we worship a God who is truth, who loves the truth, who tells us to live the truth and speak the truth and so on. So there's a huge emphasis on truth and truthfulness in Scripture. But even in Scripture, very occasionally, people lie and don't seem to, like, get in trouble for it, right? Uh-huh. So you have the Hebrew midwives who lie to Pharaoh and Rahab who lies about the spies and so on. But truth is central to God's character and ours, and it matters. And our tendency is not to do these big lies, but to do little ones that make life, maybe we think make life a little bit easier by not having to, you know, have the disruption that comes sometimes with with speaking more truthfully. 
takes more work sometimes to figure out how to say hard truths in a helpful and kind way. Mm-hmm. And so we just opt for being untruthful. But I think we can choose silence sometimes over lying. And we can always choose discernment and um, kind of consider the word that might be fitly spoken for the, for a particular situation. So I think there probably are incredibly rare occasions where someone's life is, I mean, these are always the classic examples where someone's life is at stake. And, you you know, if you tell them they're, the person's going to get killed or, you know, the if you tell the, the person who's pursuing them or something. Um, I, and, you know, it may be necessary to, to lie, although there's real differences in the, in the tradition about this. But I think that, again, there still is reason for regret, even in doing that kind of lying, because it makes a terrible, you know, you're forced into a terrible choice in a terrible situation. It doesn't make Mm -hmm. it go away that it was a lie. And there's, there's some undermining of the humanness, I think, of the people involved when that, when we're forced into that situation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big yeah. conversation. Yeah, yeah, it is. Probably much longer than we have today. But I appreciate you talking to us just a little bit about it. And about it. So moving on to gratitude, how can we cultivate the practice of gratitude in our lives? Well, I think sometimes when I, when I talk about gratitude, people um, sort of think of, of some kind of happy, clappy, um, always optimistic, sunny kind of approach to life. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about knowing that the God we worship is a God of grace and responding um, with grace and gratitude to, to God and living that way in the world. But I think that a posture of gratitude and thanks is actually a way in which we are better able to encounter or to challenge evil and injustice and misery and so on. I mean, knowing that we're held by a loving God who gives us strength and courage allows us to address some of the really difficult things. So I don't see gratitude as sort of an alternative to justice or responsibility or something like that. I actually see Mm -hmm. it as an important component of um, working on those issues. But I think to, to practice it, Often it means slowing down to notice what's around us, especially to notice the good around us, which we often take for granted, and learn to pay attention to what what is good and to tell stories and retell stories of God's faithfulness, um, to remember the blessing, um, even just simple practices, which lots of people do, of you know expressing gratitude um, first thing in the morning to God and possibly to others around you. And at the end of the day, kind of recounting the blessings of the day can be really helpful in terms of cultivating a life of gratitude. I think oftentimes um, practicing celebration is a form of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Celebration is not just a nice extra if we have the time. Um, cel- celebration is an important practice that's closely related to gratitude. But celebration, as, as one person put it, is a way in which what we're aiming for is kind of made present in our lives for that, that bit of time of the celebration. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes really important that we have those times and rejoice in them. Mm-hmm. And I think we can, uh, another friend said that we can learn to catch people in the act of being a gift, which is a very, I think, a very beautiful way of thinking about some of the people in our lives who, who do um, express God's grace to us in so many, um, oftentimes small and unnoticed ways. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. So hospitality, we had a whole episode last time about hospitality, but I want to stay true to our form. So what are some ways that we can cultivate the practice of hospitality in our lives? Right. I think for one thing, we want to distinguish it from entertaining Yes. um, or trying to make an impression. Those are really unhelpful um, kind of misunderstandings of hospitality. I think hospitality is about really sharing ourselves inviting people into our lives, in a sense, as we live them. Um, Mm -hmm. We need to resist using hospitality as a means to another end. Hospitality itself is is just a a good practice, a life-giving practice. Um, I think what can be really helpful is to think about times when you've really felt welcomed Mm -hmm. and identify the elements. You know, what what was it that made you know that the person was glad you were there? And I think... Oftentimes it's because that person seemed genuine or that community seemed genuinely interested in you. Mm-hmm. Um, they found you interesting <laughs> and um, they, they didn't treat you like you were an interruption into their important activities. You were, you know, you were valued. And so I think that, you know, they're being able to make a place for you in their lives is, is some of the, the ways in which um, hospitality is, an ex- is expressed so that you can turn your own experiences sort of around in that and say, okay, those are the ways that I could also communicate to someone that they were welcome. And so mm-hmm. just kind of working on that. So oftentimes yeah. people who have been strangers make the, the best hosts because yeah. they know what it feels like. Yeah, definitely. We're still recording in the middle of a pandemic, so we're doing it remotely. How has this pandemic informed your view of community? Has it changed it at all or just kind of reinforced what you already thought and knew about community? It made me real it has made me really grateful for Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think I um probably assumed that the most important kinds of communities had to be, uh, community life had to be face-to-face. But I must say that um, Zoom and sort of various forms of, of um, digital or electronic communication or whatever, it's actually turning out to be pretty important. I mean, it's no substitute. And I think people are realizing that it can't, can't be the only thing. We are desperate for, you know, the physical connections that um, we took for granted for so, so long, so often. But I think, um, the kinds of connections that we're having to make, the creativity that we're having to come up with to sustain community. I'm not sure that it's all that easy to create new communities right now, but there Mm -hmm. are ways in which we can um, sustain ones that we have by, again, probably we see the importance of maintaining community, especially with the people who are the most vulnerable, who are the most likely to fall out of community. So we have to Mm -hmm. work a little bit harder there. Yeah, I think it it has, uh, the pandemic, at least for some people, has tended to slow us down a little bit to be more attentive mm-hmm. to what's right around us, um, yeah. to immediate family and finding good things to do or immediate communities and, and so on and valuing that. Yeah. My hope is that when we come out of this, because I am hopeful that we do come out of this and that this ends for everyone, but I hope it helps us all do community better because we've realized how much we need it and that digital connection is great and it's we so need it right now, but that it's no substitute for the real thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. We're probably talking to people who are leaders within communities, whether that's a church community or a neighborhood, or who are going to be a leader in a community or who want to be. Um, So all these practices, they 
probably require that we create some boundaries. So how can we create the boundaries that are necessary to maintain the practices for a healthy community, whether that's small group or church or something like that? Well, I I think I'm not exactly sure what you mean by creating boundaries. I think we can maybe be more explicit about definitions and help people be clearer about what it is that they're um, looking for and trying to build. Um, I think it can actually be helpful to preach and teach directly on some of these practices because it's not a language people are familiar with, or at least not very familiar with. By by teaching or preaching on it, it helps... um, folks pay more attention to them. One of the things that I discovered was that it was much easier um, for people to notice the failures in practices than to see them when they were working well. And that's because they don't usually call attention to themselves when when they're working well. So it it really does help to talk about it, to define it, um, to see how it might be, see how a particular practice might be worked out in um, life together. And I think one of the reasons it's important is because If we don't use the language of promising or truthfulness, we're going to tend to to default to the language that's more familiar in the culture. And oftentimes that's psychological or therapeutic language. And so when things go wrong, we talk about somebody who's dysfunctional or codependent or whatever. And we miss the chance to um, notice that what's really going on is also that people are failing um, in the promises or the commitments they're making or they've been dishonest or whatever. And actually using the language of practices or something like that or virtues or whatever allows us to um, access the resources of the, um, the scriptures and the Christian tradition much more readily. Mm-hmm. So we can find wisdom um, for the difficulties that we face when, when we're actually a little bit more um, tied into to things like the practices Again, I I think that it can help leaders to reflect a little bit more on how all of these practices are, in a sense, responses to God's character, and that it simply means that this this is who we need to be as God's people. I think when I was asking that question, I was thinking of the example that you gave from Keith Wasserman and Good Works, where when I was thinking about the boundaries, where I'm not sure boundaries was the right word, but that he had... I guess, systems, if you will, or opportunities for truth-telling. I believe um, that once a a week he had opportunity, like check-in opportunities where it was totally okay for people to tell the truth if things weren't going well or if they were going well, but it wasn't just a, I'm going to ask you the question and everything was fine. So I think that's what I meant with the boundaries. Right. So so more like structures. Structures, yes, that's a much better word. Thank you. Okay, because boundaries has lots of meanings, but yes, anyway, yes, yes. yeah, um, yes. Actually, Keith's structure um, at Good Works, what, 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 kind of an arrangement that he calls clear, um, is something that the the staff, the community, does every week, and they go around and ask. Basically, what they're asking is if all relationships among the staff, and there's about twenty or twenty five of them sometimes. Um, whether they're all in good order. And mm-hmm. if they're not, then he recognizes that if, if there are really disordered relationships among the staff, they're going to have a hard time doing the kinds of work they need to do with people who are homeless. Um, and so that needs to be addressed. So they don't address it in the meeting, but they do um, make sure that the people who acknowledge that something is wrong then take the time they need to, to um, reconcile. 
I see. Are there other structures that we can put in place to help us as larger communities maintain these practices? Yeah, I think that being more explicit about the promises we ex- um, we make and, ex- and expect, a lot of communities function with um, uh, sort of implicit promises or expectations. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be helpful, especially to newcomers, to have some of those um, expectations spelled out more clearly um, because um, especially as people come to faith from totally non-Christian backgrounds, they don't know what the expectations are, and they can end up being in trouble um, for things they didn't know they were doing wrong. And so I think another um, sort of structure is that regularly we can talk about what it is we're committed to, um, what it means to be faithful in, in the world, um, what it looks like to be a Christian. Um, so mm-hmm. I think sometimes being more explicit, even though that feels kind of can even feel a little bit burdensome, can actually be pretty helpful. Yes, definitely. It's all, I, I feel like it's always better to be upfront about mm-hmm. what you want in anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, I know, too, I found from my own experiences with even just among my friend group community that the friends I appreciate the most are the ones who tell me the truth about my life that maybe I haven't seen, but they've heard me ruminate about an issue for a long time. And they're like, Heidi, what you real, what I think you really need to do based on what I hear you saying is maybe in this relationship with this particular group or, you know, find a way to do it better or well. And being able to be vulnerable with those people and having them speak truth into my life has been very, very helpful. Absolutely. And I think I think the Wesleyan tradition of the emphasis on small accountability groups and so on is really crucial. Um, to have friends or a, a tiny community that really cares about you, that knows you, and that, that cares enough to speak the truth into your life, even though you might get aggravated with them or something, mm-hmm, um, yeah. can be in, enormously helpful um, in growing toward holiness and goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So as... Many people at the seminary are starting small groups or in small groups or something like that, or people who aren't at the seminary are in small groups or accountability groups. What is somebody, what is a, one piece of advice that you would give to someone who is just starting out and wants to build that type of community? Maybe they don't have it or they're in a group and they want to be able to go deep with their group. Gosh. Um, <laughs> That's a big question, isn't it? It, it is a big question. <laughs> I guess I would say, you know, try to be what you're looking for. Um, so if you're looking for a group that's truthful and vulnerable, then you, you need to be that kind of person. Um, hmm. And um, to go in without, you know, uh, to go in with a, a recognition that all of us are going to make mistakes and fail each other in one way or another and so to recognize that we're not aiming to sort of create this ideal little group or something, but we're aiming to kind of help each other along the way. I think being patient and persevering. Um, I have a friend who talked about weaving a fabric of faithfulness, um, mm-hmm. which is just that slow threading of um, the, 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 basically the threads that kind of hold us um, together, I think would be really crucial. Mm-hmm. I think for me, when I've been in small groups before, I'm hesitant because I'm just joining the group. I really don't, sometimes at church, I don't really know the other people in the group. And so I'm hesitant to go 
too, tell them too much about me too quickly. So what is the balance between being vulnerable and then kind of self-protection a little bit until mm-hmm. you realize that you can build that trust? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's where it, it does take time. And groups are not, I mean, we do fail each other. And um, sometimes when people are willing to be vulnerable or share more about themselves than the group is ready to handle responsibly, it can be incredibly painful. And mm-hmm. so I think you do it bit by bit, and you do do some assessing of the maturity uh, level of the group. There are, I mean, even if you think about friends, there are some friends that you can be more vulnerable and truthful with than others. Yeah. And um, that's especially true for people in leadership. There needs to be great wisdom uh, about how much self-disclosure um, we offer. We want to live truthfully, but that doesn't mean telling everyone everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know that there's any kind of, um, formula for that. I think <laughs> you kind of, you know, you just take small steps toward increased, um, truthfulness and vulnerability, but sometimes it becomes clear that this is not the community that's going to handle that well, or mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, this conversation has just been great, Dr. Paul. Is there anything else that you want to say that I haven't known to ask or that you want to make sure that we talk about? I think it's that um, the, the fact that, you know, um, you mentioned perseverance, that sort of yeah. slow building of trust, the patience that we need to um, build communities, the flexibility and uh, willingness to risk the importance of being um, faithful and being responsible, being trustworthy is really, those are all crucial things to um, making a healthy and thriving community, I think. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Paul. I've really enjoyed today's conversation and I appreciate you stopping by remotely so that we could talk to you again. And I've just enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. So thank you. Well, thank you for the chance. It was really enjoyable. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Dr. Christine Pohl. Just really appreciate her time and the gift of having her on for two episodes so that she can share the gift of her work with us. I know I gained some new insight into my own life and I hope you did as well. As always, you can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, have a great day, y'all, and go do something that helps you thrive.